we've been starting for the last year and a half by remembering what T.S. Eliot said in Little Gidding, which is the end of all our exploring is to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. So if that's the case, we want to start where we want to end up, which is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because it is into that great Trinitarian mystery that Christ came to call us. For those who have not been here before, perhaps the premise of these sessions is that what we know by faith is real knowledge, even though we didn't arrive at it by scientific or rational means, that it's real knowledge and we can rely on it. And we're people who have the answer before we have the question. Christ is the answer. What's the question? We are fallen people stuck in our own fallenness, and therefore we don't even understand the predicament we're in. So the best way to figure it out is to look at what solves the predicament, what rescued us from the predicament, and that is the incarnation, the crucifixion, and resurrection. We know by faith that Christ has saved us from sin and death by those three things. So what we're doing in this month, next month, and the month after is we're taking each in turn and saying, why did it take that to save us? So tonight we're going to talk about why did it take the incarnation to save us. And at the very outset, I will tell you that I'm going to come way around the back of that question. And for that, I apologize. I'm confident this is what I'm supposed to be doing tonight, but whether it's exactly on target with our topic remains to be seen. But I'm going to start off with a piece of prose by Hilaire Belloc, early 20th century Catholic writer. And he says something apropos of our topic. He says, the central thing in the business of Europe is the doctrine of the incarnation, the affirmation that God appeared among men and the denial thereof. From the first public announcement of that affirmation about A.D. 29 to 33, it has been the main issue dividing all the men of the Greco-Roman world. Let there be no error. The question is fundamental not only to that time but to our own. It remains the root question for those who would ridicule the doctrine, for those who are indifferent to it, and for those who would defend it. With Jesus Christ as God incarnate, there is one view of the world. With Jesus Christ as a prophet, a model, or a myth, there is another. And the one view is the mortal enemy of the other. The point in that early day was this. There had been presented before the world by this new thing, the Christian church, this new society, which changed the values of human action and the nature of social life. Despair, which the old pagan civilization universally admitted and from which it turned away its eyes by following pleasure on the one hand, however shameful, or honor on the other, however sterile, this despair was, by the Christian hope, denied its empire. If that claim to divinity were ever abandoned by posterity, however, the hope would be lost, end quote. So that's a pretty bold statement about the centrality of the incarnation and its decisive importance for the difference between despair and hope. Now, to abandon the divinity of Christ, it is not necessary to formally reject the Trinitarian doctrine. All that is necessary is that that doctrine become a matter of shrugging indifference, the shrug being the first ominous signs of the despair which it foreshadows and which Belloc justly insists is the consequence of the abandonment of that doctrine. 
What I want to do is not ask whether or not the incarnation happened. I'm going to take that as given. The question I want to ask is whether and how the news of it having happened reaches us and through us others. But to meet my minimal responsibilities, I'm going to begin with a few scriptural quotations, which I think sum it up in a way. And the first one is from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's really the one that I'm going to return to thematically for the rest of the evening. And it's the great Shema of Israel, so central to Judaism and to Christianity, really. It's the summation of the determination of Israel to stay faithful to the covenant. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk of them at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I'm going to refer to this as the Shema responsibility. The Shema responsibility is the responsibility to preserve that revelation. And you can tell by reading this how much energy Israel had to put into it and how much energy it takes to pass that tradition on because we are all fallen creatures in the fallen world and we struggle against the gravitational pull. If we cannot summon the energy to meet what I'm going to call our Shema responsibility of passing on a robust version of that gift that we've been given, if we can't summon that energy, then gravity takes over and sooner or later we go native. We return to Egypt. So a huge amount of energy has to go into this project, which is one of the reasons I have such a fistful of notes because I expend some energy on the subject myself. A few years ago, I gave talks in Dubrovnik in Croatia, which is a little walled city on the Adriatic, a tiny little town circled by a wall 20 feet thick, 30 feet high. And when you see this wall 20 feet thick and 30 feet high, you realize how much energy had to go in to creating a little patch of peace in what must have been a very violent world. When you read this Deuteronomy passage, you feel that Israel had to summon a huge amount of energy to keep from reverting back. And of course, Israel did and we do all the time. But nevertheless, we overcome it by being inspired to expend the energy it takes. Well, later on in the Old Testament, the prophets come along. Jeremiah says, the Lord is going to write the Torah on our hearts. Uh, so another strategy comes in to this ongoing drama. And Ezekiel says the Lord is going to take this heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. Really, it echoes what's in Deuteronomy, which is you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So the question is, how is the Torah written on our hearts? And the answer is by the incarnation. Christ writes the Torah on our hearts by simply coming among us, walking among us. Remember we talked about the first disciples in John's gospel. They came to Jesus and said, where do you live? And he says, come and see. Be in my presence. And as you're in my presence, the Torah will come to be written on your heart. That was the case then and that's the case now. So the incarnation is key, to, I, I think, especially for us Christians, of course, 
key for understanding what Jeremiah meant when he said the Lord is going to write the Torah on our heart. But if we go to the New Testament, the beginning of the letter of the Hebrews uh, goes as follows. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. He, Christ, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. He's the icon of the God in whose image and likeness we are made. So if we're made in the image and likeness of God, what we need is a long, loving look at that God in human form in order to know how to fulfill our human vocation. So that's why we need the incarnation. Now, how does this work? For me, the supreme articulation of that is in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where he says, all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The incarnation is a continuing phenomenon. And this is how the incarnation continues. Christ comes and dwells in our hearts, breaks into our lives, and moves through us into the lives of others. And we've received that transmission from those who went before us. But it is in seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror that we are being transformed gradually into that same glory. That's what the imitatio Christi is, the imitation of Christ. It's not some clumsy attempt to do what Christ did. It's simply receiving of that impact of his life on ours. But the qualification that that Paul uses here is very interesting, and I want to spend a little time on it and come back to it. He says, all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror and so on. So there's a qualification. One has to have an unveiled face for this to happen. An unveiled face is an unguarded stance with respect to Christ. One has to let one's guard down. And this, alas, is a problem. One has to soften one's heart uh, in order to take the imprint like, a, like soft wax, uh, in order to take the imprint of Christ. And as you know, the word amen means it is true. It's an affirmation. It is true. And in the New Testament, uh, Christ often uses amen to introduce what he's going to say. Amen, I say to you, which is to say, what I'm about to say to you is true. And in John's gospel, he often doubles it up. Amen, amen, I say to you, especially when he's about to say something outrageous. Like, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham ever was, I am. I took two amens. What that means is, I'm going to say something to you, and you will not get it unless you predispose your heart to receive it. Uh, you have to open your heart to receive it. At the canon of the Mass, the priest says, lift up your heart. That's the same thing. You can't get it if you treat it the way you treat everything else with your guard up. It requires a docility or a childlikeness. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. That's another marvelous passage in Hebrews. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. That's really fantastic because Rousseau famously said, until I was put under a master, I didn't even know what it meant to want my own way. You see, it's precisely when we hear his voice that we harden our hearts. Because when we hear his voice, 
we have a distinct sense that what's at issue is who is going to control my life, me or him. And since the uh, default position on that is me, I, <laughs> there is a tendency to stiffen. As a matter of fact, there's a wonderful thing in Eliot's Wasteland where he says the weak spirit quickens to rebel. The weak spirit quickens to rebel when it feels that the control over its own existence is about to slip through its fingers, see? which is precisely what one feels when one hears the voice of Christ. What is hidden from the proud and the haughty is revealed to the humble and contrite hearts of the spiritually childlike. And if people can be made to believe that deference, humility, and the penitential spirit are signs of slavishness unworthy of serious adults, they can be effectively prevented from knowing God. In addition to its doctrinal, intellectual, and apologetic functions, catechesis has what we might call liturgical functions as well. It should not only spell out the Christian truth, but it should put us in the mood for it. And as I think I've said before here, in order to receive the truth that Christ came to reveal to us and that the church exists to pass on to us, we have to be in the mood for it, which is what the liturgy is all about, putting us in the mood for truth. But there's a liturgical dimension, I think, of catechesis as well. One has to drop one's guard to receive the revelation in a childlike spirit. There's the risk that the catechetical efforts will be too doctrinal and too propositional, as was the rote Thomism of the manuals well into the 20th century. In such cases, we may become intellectually fortified, adroit at marshalling muscular arguments, and equipped for giving an account of Christian truth, but lacking in the grace that Ronald Knox said is necessary in order to turn the water of conviction into the wine of faith. Okay, so we have to be open and receptive to this special thing that comes through us. Paul says, what do you have you have not received? We have received it, and therefore it is our privilege and obligation to pass it on. But in both receiving it and passing it on, uh, we have to have an open and childlike heart. And if we live in an age which trains us to put our guard up in all situations, uh, then we have, to d we have to reckon with that, what, what that means in terms of meeting the Shema responsibility and passing on the faith. It means we have a special issue to deal with in our culture and in our time. So I'm going to use literary examples, but I'm going to begin with something that was said at the commencement address at the University of Rochester in 2002 by James O. Friedman, former president of Dartmouth, who was giving the commencement address. And in his address, he said, quote, someone once asked Woodrow Wilson when he was president of Princeton University what the function of a liberal education ought to be. And Wilson replied, quote, to make a person as unlike his father as possible. This is what Rene Girard would call negative imitation. It's still a mimetic phenomenon. But Dr. Friedman proceeded to argue that liberal education, quote, ought to make a person independent of mind, skeptical of authority and received views, prepared to forge an identity for himself or herself and capable of becoming an individual not bent on copying other persons, 
even persons as persuasive and influential as one's father, end quote. Now, whether Dr. Friedman meant to include himself among the authorities of whose influence one should be wary is not clear. What is clear is that he seems not to have noticed that he himself was appealing to an authority figure, namely Woodrow Wilson. In other words, his basic anthropology is riddled with the sort of glaring self-contradictions which one would have thought presidents of Princeton and Dartmouth would take care to avoid. Since I'm going to use Dr. Friedman's counsel to the young as a foil for much of what follows, let me readily acknowledge that somewhere someone may at this very moment be using some silly and ill-advised remark I made in the past in either print or in a talk as a foil for a most salutary effort to get at a truth that I offhandedly dismissed or obscured. If so, they are welcome to put my error to as much use as I plan to put Dr. Friedman's. <laughs> to contemporary ears, Dr. Friedman's recipe for liberal education sounds entirely unproblematic. But not only is it anthropologically untenable, as the work of Rene Girard has shown, we are imitators and we're going to imitate somebody. And if we think we're not imitating somebody, that's because we're imitating somebody who's trying not to imitate somebody. But more importantly, it would require the repudiation of the two elements most essential to the Christian mission, namely the imitatio Christi and the teaching authority of the church. Precisely because the content of the Christian revelation is the mystery of unimpeded giving and receiving of love in the Trinity, its transmission necessarily depends on a relationship of unguarded trust on the part of the recipient. I'll say that again, it's a little complicated. Precisely because the content of the Christian revelation is the mystery of unimpeded giving and receiving of love in the Trinity, its transmission necessarily depends on a relationship of unguarded trust on the part of the recipient, which of course places a special onus on the transmitter of that tradition. For if the recipient is docile to the transmission and the transmitter betrays the heightened responsibilities that this docility requires, he or she stands under the judgment of Jesus' words, quote, if any of you put a stumbling block before any of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fashioned around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Well, there's a sobering thought for you. So I want to explore the predicament we're in and the challenges it poses for the Christian vocation by turning to a few pieces of literature. And I'm going to begin with Arthur Miller's Death of the Salesman. Willie Loman is an aging salesman, and he's having a kind of crisis in his life, and he can't make sense of his life. And his loving wife, Linda, at the very beginning of the play, she says a terrible thing is happening to him. And I'm going to use this play as a parable for our cultural situation. It seems to me a terrible thing is happening to us, and we should think about it. And I want to use this play to help us think about it. So very early on in the play, his wife Linda says of Willie, the man is exhausted. The man is exhausted. He's exhausted because he spent a lifetime trying to be somebody he's not. 
But the question I want to pose is, is Western civilization exhausted? It's a very real question. Now, civilizations come and go. Christianity lives on. If it's exhausted, it'll be a terrible thing for the people who've enjoyed its benefits up to now. But the Holy Spirit will know what to do with that. And who knows what will happen in China and Africa and elsewhere. The robust center of Christianity is very likely to shift. But nevertheless, for those of us who are the beneficiaries of Western civilization, we have a stake in it, not only because we have been the recipients of all this bounty, but also because it's our obligation to pass it on and to preserve what's good and life-giving about that civilization, and much is. So we have to ask this question. Is Western civilization exhausted? Less than 5% of the people in Europe go to church. So we have to ask ourselves. Now I'm going to make another comment about Thomas Aquinas. It's a very favorable comment, but I really, since I'm in a Dominican school, you know, I feel like I'm really out of my element here. But exhaustion, according to Thomas Aquinas, is rooted in despair, and despair is rooted in acedia, or sloth. So if we're going to analyze Willie's situation and our cultural situation, we want to ask ourselves about exhaustion, which may be rooted in despair, and which is in turn rooted in acedia, or sloth. Now, Benedict XVI says much more is meant by this word than what we usually imagine. It goes much deeper than mere idleness and a disinclination to activity. Benedict says it should be translated as metaphysical inertia. Metaphysical inertia, which Benedict writes, quote, can coexist with a great deal of activity and busyness. So even though Western civilization is busy as can be, and all of us part of it, that doesn't mean that we might not be suffering from metaphysical inertia, which may have triggered a lot of that busyness. So, is Western civilization exhausted? The way to measure the robustness of Western civilization that I'm going to use is, are we willing to meet our Shema responsibility? The Shema responsibility is to receive that great gift that we have received, and to pass it on in all of its robust vitality. And it is a responsibility that requires the expenditure of a great deal of energy. Are we willing to expend the energy to do that or not? If we knew the answer to that, we would know whether or not Western civilization is exhausted. Because if it doesn't summon the energy to do that, it is exhausted, and it will eventually implode. The task of meeting our Shema responsibilities is an arduous one. And it is tempting, therefore, either to pass on only those elements of it that are congenial to the spirit of the age, or to employ the age's factory-installed, ready-made, noble-sounding excuses for abandoning it altogether. Willie Loman was hardly in need of Dr. Friedman's advice when it came to imitating his father, because his father, like Rousseau, abandoned his children when they were just small babies. So Willie didn't know his father, and by Dr. Friedman's standards, that would have put him at an advantage over other people who did, who would have had to fight off the influence. But it didn't seem to have done Willie any good at all. As a matter of fact, early in the play, he's having a hallucination of his older brother, Ben, who's more successful. He says, Ben, you're just what I need because I, I have a fine position here, which is not true, he doesn't. But he says, I have a fine position here, but, well, Dad left when I was such a baby, and I never had a chance to talk to him, and I still feel kind of temporary. 
about myself. I still feel kind of temporary about myself. He hasn't had a model. So Willie admits that he feels kind of temporary about himself in the same sentence that he says he didn't have a father figure to help shape his life, to give some structure to his life. Benedict XVI paralleling something that could be said in Girardian terms, slightly different vocabulary, but the same point. Benedict says, quote, biological birth is not enough. Man can only accept his personality, his I, in the power of the approval of his being that comes from another. This yes of the one who loves him imparts his existence to him in a new and definitive way. In this, he receives a kind of rebirth without which his actual birth would remain incomplete and leave him in conflict with himself, end quote. And so Willie never had that, and so he's gone through life feeling a little temporary about himself. Now, Willie relates the two most important things about his life. One is the absence of the father, and the other is the discovery of a substitute. He says, Oh, yeah, my father lived many years in Alaska. He was an adventurous man. We've got quite a little streak of self-reliance in our family. Now, he makes up this admirable image of his father out of desperation. He was an adventurous man, went to Alaska. We have quite a little streak of self-reliance. This is mid-20th century Americana. Adventure, self-reliance, you know, it's Walt Whitman, Emerson, all of that. Anyways, he runs that gambit, and then he says, I thought I'd go out with my older brother and try to locate him and maybe settle in the north with the old man. Indicates that there was a certain desperation. He wanted to find this father of his. Imagine how many young people are in this position today. And if we continue to use in vitro fertilization, how many will be in an even worse situation in the years to come? Well, Willie was so desperate, he was ready to go to Alaska to try to find him. But he says here, if you notice, he says, I was going to try to locate him. I'm going to overinterpret this sentence. Try to locate him. What does that mean? It means not only did his father abandon his children, he left no forwarding address. You see what I mean? But Willie has conjured up this imaginary father figure, and he's willing to go to Alaska to try to locate him. Alaska, good luck. You see what I mean? And then he says, and maybe settle in the north with the old man. Now I'm going to overinterpret this too. The old man. Those of you who like American musicals, Music Man, if you'll remember, was the con artist who sold band instruments around. And uh, he's in River City, and he's trying to pull a scam on everybody there. And he's singing to the mothers of River City. And he says, if your son's going to the pool hall, they're coming home at night, and are they saying things like, my old man? If so, there's trouble in River City. <laughs> and I think there is something about that, because what does the term my old man say? What it means is that expressing deference towards an authority figure has become embarrassing. And therefore, we have to depreciate that figure in some way. We have to let it be known that we are not in any serious way subordinate to that, to that figure. And I mention it only because it's part of the spirit of the age. Apropos of which, the other night I was in Dallas, and I eat 98% of my meals alone, and, and I use the time to read little articles that I don't have time to read otherwise, and I was reading 
an interview with Ann Hendershot. Ann Hendershot is a scholar and an author and an interesting person who used to teach at the University of San Diego, and now she's at King's College in New York. And she was being interviewed, and she's written and done research on the way in which Catholic colleges and universities have succumbed to the spirit of the age. And part of the interview was about that, and she said the following. Catholic college administrators and faculty members became embarrassed about their connection to what they began to see as a church mired in tradition and in the past. They began to be ashamed to be seen as answering to a higher authority than the life of the mind. Ashamed to be seen answering to a higher authority than the life of the mind. The life of the mind. <laughs> For goodness sake. So that's the spirit of the age. So here's what Willie says. I was almost ready to go to Alaska and look for my father when I met a salesman in the Parker house. His name was Dave Singleman. And he was 84 years old, and he'd drum merchandise in 31 states. Old Dave, he'd go up to his room, you understand, put on his green velvet slippers, I'll never forget, and pick up his phone and call the buyers. And without ever leaving his room at the age of 84, he made his living. And when I saw that, I realized that selling was the greatest career a man could want. Willie had a conversion. He found a father figure. Now, you have something like that in Cervantes' Don Quixote. At the very beginning of Don Quixote, the narrator tells us the following. You must know that when our gentleman had nothing to do, which was most of the year round because he was a wealthy landowner, he passed his time reading books of knight errantry. He grew so strangely besotted with these amusements that he sold many acres of arable land to purchase books of that kind. He gave himself up so wholly to reading romances that a night's he would pour on until it was day and a day's he would read on until it was night. And thus, by sleeping little and reading much, the moisture of his brain was exhausted to that degree that at last he lost the use of reason. His head was filled with nothing but enchantments, quarrels, battles, challenges, wounds, complaints, amorous contests, and an abundance of impossible nonsense. A little bit later on, Don Quixote is talking to his sidekick, Sancho. He says, I want you to know, Sancho, the famous Amadis de Gaulle was one of the most perfect knight errants. But what am I saying, one of the most perfect? I should say the only, the first, the unique, the master and lord of all those who ever existed in the world. Amadis was the pole, the star, the sun for brave and amorous knights, and we others should imitate him. Thus, my friend Sancho, I reckon that whoever imitates him best will come closest to perfect chivalry. So Don Quixote is like Willie Loman. He found a model, and his whole life came into focus. He spent his life trying to be the perfect replica of Amadis de Gaulle, just as Willie spent his life trying to be a replica of Dave Singleman. Tertullian, second century Christian writer, said the soul is naturally Christian. The soul is naturally Christian. My understanding of that, or at least the way I want to apply it to this is, the soul looks for that absolutely supreme example of what a well-lived life is, what a fully lived human life is. We need that. That's why we had to have the incarnation. We're made in the image and likeness of God and we needed a long loving look at him in human form so we would know how to live this life of ours in a fully human way. Willie dimly realizes that he has what I'm calling the Shema responsibility 
we've received it, and it's our responsibility to pass it on. That's the Shema responsibility. He dimly realized that he has a responsibility and that he's failed to discharge it. He has two boys. When they were young, he gave them a punching bag. That's all we know about the way he tried to give them a hint of what life might entail. When he's having this conversation with his brother Ben, Ben's about ready to walk off stage, and, and here's what Willie says to him. Oh, Ben, he says, Ben, my boys, my boys, sometimes I'm afraid that I'm not teaching them the right kind of, Ben, how should I teach them? Now, this is really incredible. Willie did not receive it. You see what I mean? He received a, a botched version of it, and he had to sort of construct it from whole cloth with Dave Singleman. And so when it comes time to pass it on to his Boys, what, what does he have? What is he going to give them? What should I teach them, Ben? It brings us to the genealogy of this play. The next generation show up, Willie's two sons, Biff and Hap, and they represent the next stage of this metaphysical inertia. We look at Willie and we, re we realize he was fatherless in a very overt way. He didn't receive a transmission. The Shema responsibilities were abandoned, leaving him incapable of fulfilling those responsibilities, too temporary about himself to fulfill those responsibilities. And now we have his sons who are fatherless in a different kind of a way. They can't even make up this fantasy about their father in Alaska because they've got the real thing there, you see. But they're fatherless in the sense that they haven't received it from him. This is a parable about Christianity in our culture. If it starts to break down, you get these declensions. And Biff and Hap Loman come along and show us something about how we adjust or try to adjust to this situation. It's really a situation of being impoverished. That great tradition is not reaching us. So again, Thomas Aquinas refers to the daughters of inertia. And I only know this secondhand because of what is said about that in one of Pope Benedict's books. Of the several daughters of inertia that Thomas Aquinas delineates, the Pope focuses on only three of them, namely faint-heartedness, nursing grudges, and spitefulness. The, the Latin is pusillanimitas, rancor and militia. Faint-heartedness, nursing grudges, and spitefulness. I'm going to conflate the latter two, nursing grudges and spitefulness, because they really belong together. It has to do with being caught up in mimetic rivalry. So if you conflate the latter two, you have half-heartedness and hard-heartedness, indifference and defiance. So these are the two consequences of a failed transmission in the next generation, half-heartedness and hard-heartedness, indifference and defiance. Now, allow me to officiate at the shotgun marriage of the sons of Willie Loman with the daughters of inertia. Biff Loman is the half-hearted one. He comes home for the holidays. His mother says to him, are you going to stay home now, Biff? Biff says, I don't know. I just want to look around, see what's doing. His mother says, Biff, you can't look around all your life, can you? I just can't take hold, Mom. I just can't take hold of some kind of life. He's a chip off the old block, you see. Willie felt temporary about himself. Biff has received that. He didn't get an imprint. He doesn't know what to do. He's lost. 
He's faint-hearted, half-hearted about everything. He can't commit himself. His brother Hap, on the other hand, stands for happy, but he's not. He's the hard-hearted one. Now, there's Girardian categories for these things. We can talk about it at the discussion period. But in any event, Biff is caught up in, let's just say, mimetic rivalry. The way Biff has overcome his metaphysical inertia is to become rivalrous. The one thing about rivalry is that it gets you out of bed every morning. You see what I mean? It's, it's a stimulant. It's a little bit like taking an upper. So if you're experiencing metaphysical inertia, if you can get yourself involved in a good, juicy rivalry, you will appear to have a life. You will substitute ambition, which is basically the attempt to overthrow your rival, for any kind of real meaning. And that's precisely the case with Hap Lohman. He's given himself over to a pure mimetic rivalry. Now, so he has a model, too. For Willie, his model was what Gerard would call an external model. Willie idolized Dave Singleman. He never competed with him. But for Hap Lohman, his model is just slightly above him on the ladder of corporate success, just slightly above him, and he's determined to take his place. So his model has become the rival, which is Girard's recipe for the breakdown of everything, not only Girard's, but Shakespeare's recipe for the breakdown of everything. Biff says to Hap, you don't look happy. He says, I'm not happy. Well, why not? You're pretty successful what you're doing. He says, well, if I replace the merchandise manager, which is his boss, if I actually win this contest with him, I won't be any happier than he is. He's not happy, but I can't help myself. I just want to knock him off and take his play. He says, quote, when he walks into the store, waves part in front of him, and I got to show some of those pompous, self-important executives over there that Hap Lohman can make the grade. I want to walk in the store the way he walks in the store. So that's his way of dealing with his metaphysical inertia. He takes this little upper of rivalry but it can very easily disintegrate into nastiness. He says at one point, sometimes I want to just rip off my clothes in the middle of the store and outbox the goddamn merchandise manager. I mean, I can outbox, outrun, outlift anybody in that store, and I have to take orders from these common petty sons of bitches so I can't stand it anymore. Now, he's the child of Rousseau. Until I was put under a master, I didn't know what it meant to want my own way. So here you have two responses to metaphysical inertia. One is indifference, the inability to commit oneself, floating around, feeling temporary about himself. And the other is this defiance, this hard-heartedness, half-heartedness and hard-heartedness. Having argued that the sons of Willie Loman are the perfect match for the daughters of inertia. Let me try to show that these two consequences of cultural fatherlessness and the metaphysical inertia that results from it commingle to produce the strange and shapeless thing we today call postmodern multiculturalism, which is an oxymoronic combination of half-heartedness and hard-heartedness, of indifference and defiance. Catholic Christianity is the source of healthy multiculturalism. Precisely that. Christianity creates cultures that are open and respectful of religious freedom, the freedom of conscience, this sort of thing. Christianity is a bunch of fallen people trying to be better, so we've betrayed that. But fundamentally, the culture that Christianity influences 
is a culture that makes pluralism possible. But you take that away and you don't have pluralism. You have tribalism. The borders between the tribes will eventually become conflictual. Something was holding that pluralism together. And if we abandon that thing, it will become terribly conflictual. A culture is exhausted when instead of going to the trouble of giving the next generation something they can trust and on which they can confidently build a spiritually fruitful life, and when necessary speaking inconvenient truths, those with Shema responsibilities pander to the vanity of the young who have been trained to be contemptuous of them and cower before the stern glare of their ever-vigilant ideological contemporaries who remain defiantly dismissive of tradition and its sobering moral and spiritual realism. So a combination of indifference and defiance. Instead of having to take responsibility for Western culture, expending the energy necessary to preserve its most precious treasures and to go to the trouble of passing it on to the young, postmodern liberalism increasingly illiberal in its doctrinal inflexibility, proposes that we simply celebrate multicultural diversity and inclusion. No questions asked, no discernment required, no moral effort expended, nothing to preserve, nothing to defend, nothing worth dying for, the inevitable result of which is that there's nothing much worth living for. The melting pot worked only because the pot itself did not melt. That pot was forged in the furnace of Christian Catholicity, of which multiculturalism is a superficial and entirely unworkable parody. Instead of meeting our Shema responsibility, we wave an all-approving wand over the gathering storm to no effect whatsoever. Shrugging multiculturalism is a return to the pantheon. You know, the first Christians could easily have put up a shrine of Jesus in the pantheon. No problem at all, they refused, because it would have been an abandonment of the truth that they were privileged to know. But multiculturalism is a gradual return to that. And that world was a world of despair. And you get that from one sentence in Edward Gibbons, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbons was no friend of Christianity, but he says this one thing. The various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false and by the magistrate as equally useful. And something very similar to that is happening in our world. We call it multiculturalism. What was true of decadent and declining Rome is true as well of contemporary multiculturalism. It is a massive game of make-believe. And it serves to camouflage the shirking of our duty to meet our Shema responsibility. There's an interesting thing in the Brothers Karamazov I've been talking a lot about the Brothers Karamazov in other sessions, but in the interest of time, I left out a lot of that for tonight. But this is one little piece of it that I want to share with you. Ivan, who's the disbelieving Karamazov brother, is talking to Alyosha, his brother, 
and he's talking about Christ, and he says, true, he was God, but we are not gods. And the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan is the author of the Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor is his prose poem. So you would expect the Grand Inquisitor would say something like what Ivan thinks, and he indeed does. The Grand Inquisitor is talking to the silent Christ in front of him, and he says, you acted proudly and magnificently like God. But mankind, that weak, rebellious tribe, they are not gods. Now, what the Grand Inquisitor means by that is that Christ is asking too much of humanity. And the Grand Inquisitor, very much like the spirit of our age, is posing as someone who's more compassionate than Christ. Because why? Because he cuts the human race a little slack. <laughs> You see, he says to Christ, you don't cut him enough slack. I'm the compassionate one. I cut him a little slack. Look at him. You can't ask much of them. You see what I mean? You ask too much of them. I'm the one who really loves them. This is so much the spirit of our age. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the one who says, I'm really more Christ-like than Christ. I'm really more Christian than the church. You see, because I'm more compassionate, I'm more generous. We've heard it all. So it means you expect these hormone-driven young people to be chaste? You ask too much. You expect healthy young Africans to be monogamous? You ask too much. Give them condoms, for God's sake. <laughs> Cut them a little slack. Don't ask virtue. Heroism, for goodness sake. Don't ask that. You can't ask that of these people. It appears to be more compassionate, but in fact, it's contemptuous that Christ would ask for heroism, sanctity. Why? Because that's what we're made for. Christ asks us for what we're made for rather than cut us a little slack. Culture is our spiritual life support system. Lee Harris wrote an essay, purely sociological essay, no religious reference in it at all, as I can recall, but it has something to do with why it took the Incarnation to save us. And in his opening gambit, he muses about the culture that we have today, and he argues that our culture has recently undergone, quote, the most profound change that a society can undergo, constituting a genuine cultural revolution. People now, he says, are ashamed of what once made them proud and proud of what once shamed them. That's a very interesting thing to think about. Virginity and celibacy are regarded as more aberrant than promiscuity and homosexuality. One wonders when the American Psychological Association, which is now in total Babylonian captivity to the spirit of the age, is going to list virginity and celibacy as sexual disorders. As Lee Harris says, we're ashamed of what once made us proud and proud of what once shamed us. And that's just one instance of it. If Western civilization is not to regress into a dreary and despairing and morally dissolute paganism thinly disguised as freedom and tolerance, decisions have to be made. We have to return to the sources as the early 20th century and mid-20th century theology spoke of so often and which was picked up by the council, of course. 
So I'm going to share an article with you, an upbeat article from Europe. You don't find those very often. And I was very happy to find it. It's an article by Stephen England, who's a professor of history at the American University in Paris. And it's about French Catholicism. And he says in there, quote, what Francis Catholic renewal makes clear is that Christianity's offer of meaning consists of a personal and existential choice, the choice to live the old faith. So this is absolutely right. One has to make that choice. Now, you know, Eliot, 75 or 80 years ago, said we're now at a point in history where if you want to have a culture, you have to work at it. Everybody else just got it with their mother's milk, but it's not the case anymore. You now have to work at it. And what he's saying is the French Catholicism is beginning to recognize that you have to make a choice to be part of this old faith. And then he goes on to say this, though. If Christianity appears to be exhausted, and that's our question, its rivals and critics are in far worse shape. The great difference is this. Unlike, say, communists and the Greens, Catholicism is not desperately looking for renewal from without. Instead, it is finding it within, not effortlessly and not always serenely, but surely and confidently. French Catholics have no doubt that a return to the sources is at hand as near as the parish church and the Sunday Mass. And so they aren't blindly feeding like mackerel sharks on every idea that floats by as others do. Well, that's very heartening. And hope for a cheerful outcome in Europe is a bruised reed one doesn't want to break and a smoldering wick one is loath to quench. But among Christianity's European competitors, England mentions only communists and greens. But there are others. Communists and greens may be feeding on every piece of ideological flotsam and jetsam they can choke down. But radical European Islam is today feeding on a very staple diet prepared strictly in accordance with Quranic recipes, namely conversion by violence and intimidation. Compared with this challenge, communism and eco-spirituality are little more than Christian heresies enjoying their 15 minutes of fame and leaving their disciples in the spiritual wasteland. But what Belloc saw in a glass darkly in the early 20th century was the looming potential of a great heresy. In a book entitled The Great Heresies, he wrote that even though Islam, quote, happens to have fallen back in material applications, there is no reason whatsoever why it should not learn its new lesson and become our equal in all those temporal things which now alone give us our superiority over it. Whereas in faith, we have fallen inferior to it, end quote. Now, this is written a long time ago. I don't fully concur with that assessment, but it contains enough truth to be worth quoting, which is why I just did. For the emergence of degenerate and secular facsimiles of Christianity, like communism and eco-spirituality, is evidence to which a Belloc could point in confirmation of his assessment of the West's religious emaciation. In this regard, it's worth remembering what Robert Louis Wilkin said in a recent First Things article, quote, 
most of the territories that were Christian in the year 700 are now Muslim. Nothing similar has happened to Islam. Christianity seems like a rain shower that soaks the earth and then moves on, whereas Islam appears like a great lake that constantly overflows its banks to inundate new territory. When Islam arrives, it comes to stay. I don't entirely agree with that either, but there are historical facts he's alluding to that one has to recognize. These are among the inconvenient facts that must be ignored at all cost if one is looking for an excuse to evade one's Shema responsibility. Uh, the idea that we can just wave a wand over this thing in the interest of multiculturalism or something is a shallow and silly idea. Back to Don Quixote. Decisions have to be made. And Don Quixote makes one at the end of his life. This is the kind of stuff that doesn't get into Man from La Mancha because it's sobering. At the end of his life, Don Quixote is on his deathbed, and he's had a conversion. And here's what he says. He says, my mind is now clear, unencumbered by those misty shadows of ignorance that were cast over it by my bitter and continual reading of those hateful books of chivalry. I'm the enemy of a modest Gaul and all his innumerable progeny. For those profane stories dealing with knight errantry are odious to me. And I realize how foolish I was and the danger I courted in reading them. But I am in my right senses now and I abominate them. I see through all the nonsense and fraud contained in them. And my only regret is that my disillusionment has come so late, he's on his deathbed, leaving me no time to make any sort of amends by reading those books that are the light of the soul. But what are the books that are the light of the soul? What does he mean by that? He means the lives of the saints. We have to have models. Christ came to give us the supreme model, but we have to have other more proximate models. That's how it works. Ignatius Loyola was in fact a knight errant, so to speak, and goes off and fights in a war and gets wounded and ends up in a hospital and there's nothing to read but the life of Christ and the lives of the saints. And he reads them and he says, hey, I don't want to be a knight. I want to be a saint. <laughs> I want to be what humans are called to be. So we too have to make decisions. And chief among them is the choice of a paramount cultural model, the ideal, the figure that serves as a touchstone for the highest and noblest aspirations of the culture and for those of its members who fall under its influence, the center of their lives. And this is what Lee Harris calls a shiny example. He says all coherent cultures have a singular shiny example. And the difference between these cultures will have to do with the difference between these shiny examples. These shiny examples shape the culture in a very profound way. Here's what he says. In a world where shining examples are no longer pointed out, a la Dr. Friedman, in a world where shining examples are no longer pointed out, what is there to aspire to? You must change your life, as Rilke's poem tells us. You know, the archaic torso of Apollo ends with that line, you must change your life. You must change your life, as Rilke's poem tells us, but into what? A tolerant person? A wise person? These are abstractions. They permit us to declare ourselves tolerant without further ado, just as we can equally well declare ourselves caring or loving or open-minded. Indeed, we can even display bumper stickers that assure us and the world of our deep devotion to world peace and the brotherhood of man. 
These bumper stickers are advertisements for the driver, of course. And then he goes on to say, to follow in the footsteps of a living person is a radically different process from attempting to conform one's day-to-day -day life according to an abstract principle or maxim. If someone tells a child to show respect to other people, the child may sincerely wish to do so, but he may not have a clue as to how to do it. This is why we needed the Incarnation. We needed a living example of what it means to live one's life in complete devotion to God. The value of any given culture's shining example will depend on how well it actually embodies the true goal of human existence. It should be obvious to all but the ideologically blinded that not all shining examples are equal in that regard. Nor will the culture that looks to them for inspiration be equally well served by its devotion to them. Is the shining example the Buddha, Mohammed, Mao Zedong, Jesus, Kim Jong-il, the dear leader of North Korea? What if the culture's paragon is the Buddha, a master of interior states of consciousness, a virtuoso of dispassionate detachment from illusory sorrows and sufferings of the world, whose central message was how to, by quieting the mind and freeing oneself from desire, avoid suffering? What if the cultural example is Jesus Christ, a man of peace who spent his life healing and giving solace and comfort to the poor and the poor in spirit, and who walked defenselessly into the terrifying maw of worldly and religious violence to die there without lifting his hand or raising his voice except to pray forgiveness on his tormentor? What if the culture's exemplary figure is Mohammed, a warlord and a slave owner who ordered the assassination of his political enemies, laughing at the sight of their decapitated corpses, a man who coupled with women and girls at will, with or without their consent and that of their husbands, and who generally terrified his political enemies and the peoples he subjugated. Raymond Ibrahim, an author who's made a study of Islam, says, quote, today's radicals see themselves as following in the prophet's footsteps trying to create the society he created through blood and conquest as he did, end quote. Models matter. What Nicholas Berdyaev says of our psychological and spiritual situation is also true of our cultural situation. He says, quote, inner division wears away personality, and this division can only be overcome by making a choice, by selecting a definite object of one's love. Debauchery means the absolute inability to choose from among many attractions, which is multiculturalism, a return to the pantheon, and so on. A choice needs to be made. Without me, you can do nothing, said Jesus, in that great vine and branches discourse. Without me, you can do nothing. It is comforting to think that we can't figure out what he means by that. But my guess is that future historians, armed with anthropological sensibilities we are just now acquiring, won't have much trouble with it. Without me, you can do nothing doesn't mean that we will get nothing done. It means that without Christ, what we do will eventually and inevitably succumb to the gravitational pull of our fallen condition 
and end in the nothing of nihilism, or what the last two popes have called the culture of death. We are being transformed, says Paul, by seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. And Benedict XVI says, the mediation of faith through Jesus and its secondary mediation through the saints are linked together. So Christ is the primary mediator, the icon of the living God. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. These are these statements that shatter the rosy glow of that multicultural idea. No one comes to the Father except through me. Without me, you can do nothing. But to that must be added, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Cardinal Ratzinger, in an earlier book, says, quote, The new evangelization we need so urgently today is not to be attained with cleverly thought-out ideas, however cunningly these may be elaborated. The catastrophic failure of modern catechesis is all too obvious. And the catastrophic failure of modern catechesis is this failure to meet our Shema responsibilities that I've been harping on for the last while. He goes on to say, the apostasy of the modern age rests on the disappearance of the verification of faith in the lives of Christians. And this is to be seen the great responsibility of Christians today. It has to be seen in us. He goes on, the conversion of the ancient world to Christianity was not the result of any planned activity on the part of the church, but the fruit of the proof of the faith as it became visible in the life of Christians and the community of the church, end quote. So without me, you can do nothing. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as the Father sent me, so I now send you. That's how the incarnation works. The incarnation is constantly coming into the world, through us, into our own lives. Benedict XVI says, God is drawing us into an ontological communion with the Son. Is drawing us into an ontological communion with the Son, each one of us. And the further into that we are drawn, the more we can say with Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the incarnation. The incarnation is happening as we speak. And it's this ongoing incarnation that empowers us to fulfill our Shema responsibility. So I'm just going to end with something that struck me very much the other night. Last Saturday, I went to Vigil Mass at the University of Dallas because I had to fly on Sunday. And the recessional antiphon after Mass was this beautiful uh, phrase. And you may know it's from the Iona community. Take Oh, take me as I am, summon out what I shall be, set your seal upon my heart, and live in me. That's the invitation to the incarnation. The incarnation continues to happen, and the news of its original happening passes through those in whom it is presently happening. And those in whom it is presently happening are those who awaken to their Shema responsibility of passing on that good news to people who haven't encountered it yet. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done.
Then in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging, a holy rest, and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work. Our work.